Hi, True Crime BFFs. I have missed you. Today's case is so special to me because I've had the life-changing experience of connecting with Rosemarie D'Alessandro. She is the mother of Joan, whose case we will be discussing in this two-part deep dive. I really can't assign words that would convey how much her strength and determination has just blown my mind. The episode is particularly rough. A significant amount of the content we will be covering includes graphic descriptions of physical and sexual assault of a child. Somehow, despite all the horrific, cruel details we will cover today, at the center of this, there is so much light, hope, love, and superhuman strength. Please check the show notes for all the stuff, you know, the usual stuff, but specifically the nonprofit Jones Joy, and that's jonesjoy.org, and a book called The Message of Light Amid Letters of Darkness. It's amazing, and it's available on Amazon. The e-version is under $10. Okay, hide your kids, hide your wife. Let's do this. Joan Angela D'Alessandro was seven years old in 1973. She lived in Hillsdale, New Jersey with her family. So we've got parents, Rosemarie and Frank, and their three kids. All are just one year apart. There's Frankie, age nine, Marie, who's eight, and then Joan, the baby, who's seven. Rosemary and Frank might have thought that they had their hands full with the two oldest kids, but they had another thing coming when Joan was born. So her older siblings were a little more reserved and quiet, but Joan was a total live wire. She was a complete social butterfly. Her heart was just bursting with empathy, and she had a constant need to get up and go. By the time she was just seven years old, Joan had a profound gift for caring for people, and she was always the first person to stand up for others. If somebody was alone on the playground or at the lunch table, she sat with them and was their friend. And she was incredibly easy to be friends with too. Joan is, just seems like the type of little human that you simply cannot help but smile around. She had an infectious smile. And as a matter of fact, try to find a single picture of Joan that did not show her grinning from ear to ear. Joan was also an enthusiastic member of the Girl Scouts. She had a personal life motto that made her an incredibly valuable member of her Girl Scout troop, and that motto was to do something. She was proactive, and if something needed done, she would step up and do it herself, and that was something that she absolutely thrived at. She couldn't wait to do more, more, more. Joan was so excited for her eighth birthday because her mom, Rosemarie, had promised to get her piano lessons. Even at just three years old, Joan would sit intently listening to music on a phonograph for up to an hour. She was so excited to learn to play the piano just like her older sister, Marie. And maybe, who knows, maybe she could have even learned to play her favorite song, and that's Beethoven's Ode to Joy. You might not know it by name, but you'll recognize Ode to Joy if you give it a listen. And I want you to hear that song as we talk about Joan's story and her legacy. Thursday, April 19th, 1973 was a day like any other, with just one exception. Because Joan and her siblings, they went to Catholic school, and they actually had the day off in observance of Holy Thursday, which is celebrated right before Easter Sunday. Now, all the other kids in the neighborhood that went to public school, they would be in classes that day. 
but not Joan, Marie, and Frankie. The three D'Alessandro kids kept busy most of the day. Marie and Joan dutifully delivered the last of their Girl Scout cookie orders, and later Marie headed off to a softball game while oldest brother Frankie went over to a friend's house. That left just Rosemarie and her youngest Joan home for the rest of the day. And Joan's dad, Frank, he was away at work. He was a computer analyst. So as the end of the afternoon is kind of winding down, something was bothering Joan. Not all of the Girl Scout cookies had been delivered because the McGowan family down the street, they hadn't been home when they did their deliveries. So when Joan spotted the McGowan's brand new car coming down the street at about 2.45 p.m., she was thrilled. Joan grabbed the order, two boxes of cookies, and raced out the door saying, Bye, Mommy. I'll be right back. And as I'm sure you know, Joan did not come right back as she had said, but it wasn't an immediate cause for concern. Rosemarie thought she had probably gotten distracted. Maybe she was at her friend Tamara's house. And this made sense because by this time, even the kids who had been at school that day would have been arriving home. At around 4.45 p.m., Rosemarie began to get worried when Marie's piano teacher arrived for her lesson. And it's now that she's kind of realizing how long Joan had been gone. Like I said, Joan was so excited for her own piano lessons to begin, and she loved watching her older sister learn until she had the chance to do it herself. Rosemary knew something wasn't right, so at that point, she immediately began making calls around the neighborhood to ask if anyone had seen Joan. But sadly, we all know that none of these calls lead anywhere. It was about an hour after Rosemary's panic began to set in when her husband, Frank, got home from work. Once he got up to speed with the situation and everything that's happening, both parents agreed that it was time to call the police. And after they made that call, Frank, Rosemary, and Marie immediately got in the car to drive around the area and look for Joan until the police arrived. Unfortunately, they returned home empty-handed and even more frantic. Back at the house, Rosemary is a nervous wreck. I'm sure that she couldn't just sit there and wait. Now, she couldn't imagine why Joan would still be at the house where she was dropping off the cookies, but, you know, she's got to be sure. So while her husband, Frank, was waiting for the police to get there, Rosemary grabbed her son, Frankie, and headed down to the McGowans. And she is anxiously approaching the house. And this is a perfectly suburban, bi-level red brick house with a two-car garage. All of this is taking place in a really nice and a really safe neighborhood. Now, she knew of the family that lived there, but she didn't I don't think she really knew who or what to expect at the door. When she rang the bell, 27-year-old Joseph McGowan answered. She didn't personally know him, but all of her kids had known him from around the neighborhood and said he was really nice. Joseph was a high school chemistry teacher, and he lived with his mom, Genevieve, and his grandmother, who had been the ones to purchase the cookies. He answered the door, smoking a thin cigar, looking as if he had just showered. Joseph was very casual and matter-of-fact in dealing with Rosemary. As she stepped into the foyer of the house, Rosemary felt with a shiver of certainty that she was standing exactly where her daughter stood to deliver the cookies. But when she asked McGowan if he had seen Joan, he replied, no. I never saw her. 
everything inside of Rosemary is flipping and stabbing and turning upside down. She is feeling the air just get sucked out of the room. But Joseph McGowan, he seemed totally unfazed. Pretty quickly, Rosemary sees a long fire truck pulling up at her house down the street. Authorities and first responders were beginning to arrive. It was at that moment that the reality of the situation truly is sinking in, and it's hitting her like a ton of bricks that, yes, this is really happening. Even when Rosemary's eyes began to fill with tears inside of his home, Joseph McGowan was completely cold and emotionless towards her. She could tell that he felt nothing for her or her situation. And as she began to cry, he starts to usher her towards the door, like she was inconveniencing him. As Rosemary walked back to her house to meet with first responders, she knew with every fiber of her being that this nice chemistry teacher she had just met with that he knew exactly what happened to her daughter, and she had to know that it was not good. Almost instantaneously, a search was organized in the neighborhood totally sprang into action. Hundreds of volunteers came out to look for little Joan, and that included local Boy Scouts, caring neighbors, brave children, and other parents who knew Rosemary and Frank were living their worst nightmare that night. Among the ranks of caring friends and neighbors, was the same man who failed to comfort Rosemary when she was just at his house, Joseph McGowan. Nobody could quite believe that this was really happening. And it might be a cliche these days, but things like this truly did not happen in the town of Hillsdale, New Jersey. Luckily, everyone took this for exactly what it was, an emergency that needed immediate and urgent action. Nobody was going to wait and see if she just turned up. When the local police chief, a guy named Philip Verisco, heard from his station that a little girl was missing, he was on vacation in Florida. He knew that his community needed him, and he had to return to deal with this head-on. And by that evening, he was already on a plane back to New Jersey. With night closing in at 9.20 that evening, a priest from St. John Baptist Church arrived at the home to offer the family comfort. And for good reason, because at the same time, a state trooper with his canine partner arrived to assist in the search. The officer asked Rosemary to take his German shepherd to her daughter's hamper so that the dog could get a scent from Joan's underwear. There are moments like this in every one of these horrible stories that just destroy me. The gravity and reality of a police dog sniffing your missing child's underwear feels incomprehensible to me. I don't think we can truly grasp what the pain and fear felt like for Joan's parents. In her book, The Message of Light Amid Letters of Darkness, Rosemary describes the way the police dog could innately feel what she was going through at the house that night. She knew that the dog sensed the dire situation and the pain that was taking over her mind and body. And I absolutely believe this. Dogs are so empathetic when the humans around them are in pain. 
With the scent from Joan's underwear, the dog moved purposefully and quickly to the front door of the McGowan residence and then to a spot next to their garage. But nothing came of this and no trace of Joan would be found that night. The atmosphere in the D'Alessandro house was unbearable as the family waited to hear anything at all about their little girl. The investigation continued at full speed on Friday and Saturday. Rosemary was doing any and every media interview possible, pleading for anyone with information to come forward. Although it doesn't say it in the book, I do wonder that if in those moments when she was begging for her daughter to be returned to her, in her mind, was she speaking to Joseph McGowan directly? Joan's dad, Frank, was also doing interviews, and he told newspaper reporters that if Joan was returned to them safely, he would personally ask the authorities to waive prosecution of whoever took her. This is how desperate they were to get their daughter back. Police Chief Philip Verisco was soon back in New Jersey and ready to lead the investigation. He went to the family home and met with Rosemary and Frank, and he collected Joan's school photograph that was hanging on the wall. He was kind to them, but he was honest. He told them that, you know, he could not promise that everything would be okay, but he did assure them that Joan's case would be done right. Chief Verisco swiftly tracked down leads, questioning strangers seen in the area that day. But each of these people had valid reasons to be there. It was all too obvious. The clues, the dogs, everything was steering the investigation back to the McGowan house. That was Joan's last stop. Rosemary's chilling encounter there only heightened Verisco's suspicions. With nowhere else to turn, he honed in on the McGowan family home to speak to its lone male resident. Joseph McGowan taught chemistry at Tappan Z High, and that was a high school just over the state line in Orangeburg, New York. His father had passed away when he was receiving his master's degree in science. And even though he had this degree and a steady job at the high school, as I said, he lived in the basement of the house that belonged to his mom and granny. On paper, McGowan was the last person you would expect to be involved in anything like this. He had no criminal history and he was not known to police in the area. And he was a trusted enough member of society that he was allowed to teach and be around children. When questioned by police, Joseph repeated what he had told Rosemarie, that he hadn't seen Joan that day. She never even came to the door. He did, however, offer some more detail in this time, explaining that he couldn't possibly have seen her because he had been at the grocery store. And this is where Dr. Dumbass begins to crumble. When pressed for details, what he bought, which cashier checked him out, you know, stuff like that, he just, he couldn't remember or he didn't have the answers. What he was telling the police was not adding up and investigators kept at him. He was spoken to on both Friday and Saturday. Once it became painfully clear that Joseph could not account for his whereabouts at the time Joan vanished, he was asked to take a polygraph. Police were probably shocked when he not only agreed to do this, but followed through with it and took the test. It's always worth mentioning that now polygraph tests are not actually permissible to use as evidence in court. Their results are very much open to interpretation, but they do function as an interviewing tactic for the police. Regardless of how you feel about lie detectors, Joseph failed miserably. Once he was given the results and confronted with his lies, 
he knew the charade was over. But before he said a word, he first wanted to talk to a priest. By the time a priest came to meet with him, it was Easter Sunday. On that day, which should have been a celebration for the D'Alessandro family, 27-year-old Joseph McGowan confessed to killing 7-year-old Joan. Joan had told her mom that she would be right back on Holy Thursday, and just days later on Easter Sunday, her killer was caught. After speaking to the priest, McGowan agreed to take authorities to where he had discarded Joan's tiny body. That was in Harriman State Park, just across the border in New York, about 20 miles away. Once the confession comes before doing anything else, at around 4 p.m., Chief Verisco rushed out of the station to get to the D'Alessandro house. He was determined that the family would not hear these details from anybody but him, and that was not going to be an easy thing to do. The whole situation in town was a complete spectacle. Everybody knew that McGowan was being questioned, and crowds of people were gathering outside the station waiting for news. Accompanied by a Catholic priest, Chief Ferrisco was able to get to the D'Alessandro home before the news reached them. As soon as she saw the pair walking up to the house, she knew. She knew that the neighbor she had suspected had indeed done something to her daughter. When the words came out of Verisco's mouth confirming that Joan was dead, she describes feeling as though she had swallowed her own insides. She reactively cried out in pain, saying that she wanted to kill the man responsible. Unbelievably, the priest, who was supposed to be there to comfort her, scolded her for saying this. Chief Verisco stood up for Rosemary and told the man to leave her alone. The D'Alessandro home, which was full of relatives and guests, erupted in guttural wails and cries. But Rosemary couldn't sink into the oblivion that was overtaking her. She knew that Frankie and Marie were downstairs and would hear all of this commotion. She knew they would be so scared. In her book, she recalls telling her two young children that their baby sister, Joan, was gone. They looked back at their mother with no expression at all. They simply could not take it all in. They were just eight and nine years old. With Verisco at the family home, other officers had already been dispatched to the location at Harriman State Park. The park is enormous. It has over 200 miles of hiking trails, multiple beaches, camping areas, all manner of places that you could conceal something that you didn't want someone to find. Before we go any further, I want to go ahead and issue a trigger warning for approximately the next two to three minutes. Fast forward if you need to, and we will have a few of these. But I did want to warn you that the next part is fairly graphic. With McGowan's directions, they immediately found seven-year-old Joan's naked and battered body. She was lying in a crevice between two boulders. Her neck was severely twisted. At the scene, the medical examiner determined that Joan was not killed there. The lividity, the discoloration of skin that occurs after death due to blood pooling on Joan's body did not correlate with the position she was found in. The scene was horrific, and a neighbor of the D'Alessandros who happened to be an FBI agent was called to the park to identify her body. 
A grid search of the surrounding area turned up a plastic bag, and it contained everything Joan would have been wearing when she left that Thursday to deliver the last batch of cookies. It was red and white tennis shoes, a teal shirt, maroon pants, white socks, and white underwear. The underwear was stained with what appeared to be blood, and that would later be confirmed by testing. That night, before her body was removed from the scene, a priest came to read Joan her last rites. On autopsy, a devastating number of injuries were revealed. Her face and head had endured a brutal assault. She had lacerations to the mouth and chin. There was a frontal fracture in her skull. Both her eyes were blackened and swollen shut. Three of her teeth were knocked out, and she had hemorrhaging of the brain. The rest of her body fared no better. Her neck was fractured, likely a result of manual strangulation. Her right shoulder was dislocated. There was hemorrhaging in her liver, bruising on her lungs and liver, and rupture of her hymen. So in summary, Joan was raped choked and beaten to death. A horrific enough fate on its own, but the medical examiner also believed that she did not die upon receiving this initial strangulation or the beating to the head and the body. Parts of Joan's body were drastically swollen, and that's something that takes at least 30 minutes to occur. She was still alive for 30 minutes after being viciously attacked. On closer inspection, and it would later be confirmed, the medical examiner believed that about 30 minutes after the initial attack, McGowan went back and strangled her again out of fear that she was still alive. That would have been the final cause of her death. And as John Douglas said in the book, we can only hope that Joan was unconscious for those 30 minutes. On Tuesday, April 24th, 1973, the killer was arraigned before the Bergen County judge for murder. Bail was set at $50,000 and went unpaid. Two days later, on April 26, 1973, Joan's funeral mass was held. It took place at the Roman Catholic Church of St. John the Baptist, the same school and church where Joan attended school. Over 900 people gathered to say their goodbyes and give condolences, and this included all of her second-grade classmates. There were 14 priests and clerics in long, white, flowing robes overseeing the 45-minute service. And topping her casket was a beautiful, simple spray of white carnations and other spring blooms. Joan's parents specifically asked that no flowers be sent and instead asked that offerings be made to the church in their place. Joan should have been receiving her first Holy Communion on that Sunday, something that meant the world to her and her family. But instead, her disfigured and brutalized body lay in a casket at the altar of her church. With McGowan in jail awaiting further action, investigators were speaking to anyone and everyone that knew him. Most of the quotes that I can find are from his co-workers, so it doesn't appear that anyone particularly close to him ever came forward or claimed him. But that doesn't mean there's no information. Quite the contrary. McGowan's work friends were shocked when he was revealed to be Joan's murderer. In hindsight, sure, he exhibited some strange habits, but no one could have predicted something like this. 
One coworker, this guy named Jack, he mentioned McGowan's massive key ring, almost like a like a jailer's key ring. It was totally useless. There was no reason for it, but he flaunted it in a show of like power and authority. He held no administrative duties. He was just a chemistry teacher, but he still took it upon himself to meticulously check each classroom door, making sure it was locked at the end of the day, and scolded colleagues who forgot. He was a known suck-up to school administrators. The higher-ups, just anybody above him, he is always ass-kissing, desperate for their attention and acceptance. It should come as no surprise that while he certainly wasn't hated, no one was very interested in hanging out with him either. His fellow teachers had all been planning a Caribbean trip for spring break, and quietly, he just wasn't invited. As for the kids at the high school, Several female students reported feeling deeply uncomfortable around him, one even demanding to be reassigned from his class after just one period. Another told of her terror when she innocently asked McGowan what to do with an unneeded flask, only for him to snatch it and smash it on the ground for no reason. More than one acquaintance of McGowan's reported being able to tell that there was a lot of pent-up emotion that he seemed to be holding back. He was holding a lot back. Very few people knew that he was in a steady relationship. He actually had a fiancé, and even less people knew that it had suddenly ended right around the time of Joan's murder. Only one guy had ever even met her, and he commented that she seemed sweet, nice, and normal in comparison to the aloof McGowan. The co-worker also remembered her as very small and said that she looked like a child next to his six-foot-two frame. Okay, guys, the next part of this episode is just profoundly disturbing. We are going to go over McGowan's initial confession and forensic psyche eval, as well as touch on other reports from some of the many subsequent assessments and interviews over the years. There are graphic descriptions of violence, murder, and rape against a young child, So while it's important for me, and that's just me personally, to take in the true depth of the atrocities that were inflicted upon seven-year-old Joan, it does not have to be that way for you. Please take care of yourself and fast forward if necessary. When Joe knocked on the door on Holy Thursday, Joseph McGowan was able to see her through the screen door from down in his basement. She had the cookies ordered by his mom or granny and politely told him that she was there to collect the money, drop the cookies off. He pretended not to have the correct change and said, come on, come downstairs to my room so I can get you the money. Joan was incredibly sweet, but she was not foolish or naive, and she didn't want to go down there with him. When she refused, he forcibly grabbed her and dragged her down the stairs. And his mommy was at work, but his 87-year-old grandmother was in the home watching TV, and she's going to be there throughout the entirety of these events that are coming up. Once he forced her downstairs, the killer ordered Joan to take off her clothes. According to him, he was so frenzied and so excited at the sight of this, of her undressing, that he prematurely ejaculated into his hand before she even got all the way undressed. However, he has insisted for decades that he never, quote, completed the act. He claimed that after ejaculating into his own hand, he was enraged and proceeded to penetrate Joan digitally. 
My guess is this is likely an attempt to explain away why his semen was present in her vagina. Also, the significant and brutal trauma to her hymen and vagina and the blood in her underwear. Regardless of what he did or did not use, what this describes is brutal, forcible rape upon a child. Why he seemed to think that he would receive some form of leniency for just digital penetration is absolutely beyond me. And what follows next is a direct quote from the killer explaining what immediately followed the rape. And this is a direct quote. I grabbed her and started to strangle her, and I dragged her off the bed, tossed her into a corner of my room on the tile floor, off the rugs. She was trying to, you know, scream, and she was fighting back. But of course, she really couldn't since I had my hands around her throat. Um, she stopped struggling, just sort of laid there. I got dressed. I had been sweating so violently, I went out to the garage. I got some plastic bags to put her in. Returning from the garage, I saw that she was still moving, so I began strangling her again, and I hit her head on the floor repeatedly. She began to bleed from the mouth, nose, face, I don't know where. I then grabbed one of the plastic bags and put it over her head and twisted it tightly and held it there until she stopped. End quote. After killing Joan, he put her body in a trash bag, then wrapped that in an old sofa cover, tied it with cords, and put her in the trunk of the car, that same new car that Joan had been so excited to see from her house. He then used old t-shirts to clean up the very bloody crime scene. He drove 20 miles to Harriman State Park where he unwrapped her naked body and put her in between the rocks where she was later found. After dumping her in the rocks, he came back home and showered. That is when the mother of the little girl that he had just raped and murdered showed up at his door. As you'll recall, he was totally cold and unhelpful, also totally casual and unaffected. Next, he joined in on the neighborhood search for Joan right after he had just dumped her naked and battered body 20 miles away. If you're not already sick enough, just know that he also told the first psychologist that he spoke with that, quote, I felt better when I went back home to the house. I slept well. As I mentioned earlier, there were a great number of psychological evaluations carried out on the killer by numerous different professions, all kinds of all kinds of people. The results of these evaluations at times conflicted with each other, but I'm going to do my best to summarize the gist of them here, and you can find these in the full detailed court report, which will be linked in the sources. One doctor reported a, quote, well-documented history of attraction to young girls, end quote, and that reportedly included becoming aroused the previous summer by his own 12-year-old cousin. He admitted to masturbating to rape fantasies, claiming this was due to his sexual frustration and anxiety. Some of the doctors proposed that his interest in young girls was because they weren't a threat to his fragile masculinity, one stating that, quote, he experiences tension whenever he gets close to the opposite sex. This passivity generates anxiety, which in turn feeds on itself and results in greater tension, which ends in a complete loss of self-control or sexual release, end quote. Regardless of when they interviewed him, most of the experts agreed that if given the chance, McGowan would certainly act out again. 
One notable exception to this was Dr. Eugene Revich, who I am specifically naming and shaming due to the despicable nature of his statements. This will set you off. Revich was a professor trained in both neurology and psychiatry and wrote in his reports that, quote, we believe these events only occur once in a lifetime of such individuals. A series of circumstances are necessary to provoke the incident. If the girl had not come to his home that day, or perhaps if he had $2 instead of only a $1 and a $20 bill, the event would not have taken place. End quote. I, I mean, do I even have to comment? What the fuck is this guy thinking, saying this? I just can't believe it. Oh, okay. So enough of the psych report stuff for now. So seeing as how he's already confessed to her murder, there would be no trial. McGowan pleaded guilty to first-degree felony murder in June of 1974. But that's it. Felony murder. Just murder. Not rape. Not torture. I can't make it make sense. But I don't think that him confessing and pleading guilty to murder was a sign of remorse or him doing the right thing. Personally, I think he was smart enough to know that he was fucked. He knew he was caught, so he fessed up and he is praying and hoping for leniency. Of course, Rosemarie was in attendance that day at court. It was important to her that she be there for Joan. Genevieve, his mommy, was also there that day, and she must have been so proud. I want to use Rosemary's exact words about that day in the courtroom here, and this is from her book, The Message of Light Amid Letters of Darkness. Obviously, no one can tell this story better than her. Quote, when I went into the courtroom, there was a lady standing by the doorway, and it was his mother. She looked at me with eyes that were as piercing as swords and filled with contempt. I went to sit, and I remember focusing on staying calm because I didn't want him to see me tearful because I felt that that would be something that he would like to see, end quote. Someone that went to church with McGowan's mom felt compelled to tell Rosemarie that Genevieve said that she hated her because in her mind, if it hadn't been for Rosemarie, Joseph wouldn't have killed Joan or gone to prison. So, yeah, I can't imagine how her son turned out to be such a monster. On November 4, 1974, McGowan was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 14 years. Even though that seems like an insanely light sentence, given the crimes he committed and confessed to, that didn't stop him from appealing many, many more times in an attempt to get an even lighter sentence but we'll be getting back to all that nonsense later in the timeline. According to Rosemarie, almost as soon as Joan was buried, everyone just went back to their normal lives. This was unthinkable for her. I mean, she couldn't even think about Girl Scout cookies without being overwhelmed. Think about how if you're an average American citizen, Every year, without fail, there are Girl Scout troops and cookie sales everywhere you look. You really can't escape them. Now imagine what the sight of just a box of these cookies or a child in the Girl Scout uniform, what that would do to you if you were in Rosemary's place. Following Joan's funeral and the ludicrously light sentencing, of course, 
nothing would ever be the same again for Rosemary. But mothers don't stop being mothers when their children are murdered. She had to keep going and hold it together for Frankie and Marie, who were just nine and eight. She wanted to provide a normal life for them. She had to stay stable in what I'm sure any person would describe as the worst case scenario after losing her youngest child. She tried desperately to not be overprotective or paranoid. They even stayed in the same house, and Marie was allowed to keep being a Girl Scout. That was something that was important to her. Rosemary didn't try to shield Marie or Frankie from the news about their sister or people talking about what happened to her because she knew that she couldn't. It was unavoidable. The police chief at the time said for their town, Joan's death was as defining a moment as 9-11. Everyone remembered it, and it was all anyone could talk about. Even though this was 50 years ago, well before mental health and trauma were regular topics of conversation, Rosemary was, in my opinion, really ahead of her time. She was totally present for her remaining children, sitting on the floor and just talking to them about anything and everything, whatever came to their mind. She was talking them through not only what they all had suffered, but anything else that interested them, anywhere their mind could go. Just as the family was about to face their first Christmas without Joan, Rosemary suffered another crushing loss when her own father died of cancer. It had been just seven months since Joan was murdered. Rosemary was particularly close to her father. He had been a refuge and a safe place in her own childhood. Pain would continue to thread itself through her life as she had long been battling a mysterious and debilitating illness, and it had started to flare up again after Joan was killed. Since she was just 19 years old, Rosemary's legs would give out from under her. She suffered from debilitating exhaustion, extreme fatigue, and muscle pain. She wouldn't be correctly diagnosed until a year after losing Joan, and that's after innumerable tests. Finally, she was told that she was suffering from myasthenia gravis, which I will call MG from now on. MG is an autoimmune neuromuscular disease that can cause extreme fatigue, double vision, difficulty chewing and swallowing, and sometimes even trouble breathing. MG can also cause visible symptoms such as droopy eyelids or slurred speech. But no matter what, this woman kept fighting. She kept persevering and showing up for her family every single day. Rosemary and Frank's marriage, which, if we're being blunt, never seemed to be ideal, but now it was really struggling under the weight of all the devastation the last few years had brought. Rosemary would later describe some of their issues by saying that Frank, he had a good job, but he was not very communicative. She even said that he wasn't her soulmate at all. Just the day before Joan vanished, he had lashed out about something trivial, like not being able to find a box for a gift. The tension and the sadness in the home continued to ramp up when Rosemary endured the loss of a baby through miscarriage. The hits seemed to just keep coming for the marriage and for Rosemary personally. But that would finally change and there would be light in 1980 when Rosemary and Frank welcomed a son, Michael. Just two years later, in 1982, another son, 
John, and if Joan had not been murdered, she would have been 17 with two new baby brothers. Rosemary was elated to have this new life in the home, a new generation. I cannot stress enough that Rosemary is not only an outstanding human being, but also an amazing once-in-a-lifetime best friend type of mother. I feel like I personally would have been so happy and lucky to have her as one. Sadly, as new life came into the house, so did new stress. The D'Alessandros now had four kids at home, and after the birth of John, who is now their youngest child, Frank had lost his well-paying job. His rage and explosive episodes were accelerating, and I don't just mean that he was yelling at them. There are some really disturbing occurrences, like, for instance, Frank totally out of nowhere, throwing a knife between his two young sons. Rosemary covers that and a lot more in her book, The Message of Light Amid Letters of Darkness, and I would really encourage you to read that because there is just so much more. When Michael and John were just 9 and 11 years old, Tensions in the family reached a breaking point. Rosemarie had insisted that Frank move down to the basement and away from her and the children. Things were no longer safe and she wanted out. She was ready to put an end to this very unhappy and likely dangerous marriage. She planned to file for divorce on what would have been Joan's 28th birthday in 1993. But again, life had other plans. Make sure to come back for part two of the Joan D'Alessandro story because there is so much more. Woo! Okay, we did it. Part one at least. Y'all, this one is a doozy. Make sure you are subscribed or following True Crime BFF on whatever you're listening on, you know, so you get notified when part two comes out. We are going to cover everything that happened after the murder. And this shit is so wild and so inspiring. But if you don't do anything else, even if you hate this podcast and you'll never listen again, do humanity a favor and go check out jonesjoy.org and the amazing work Rosemarie D'Alessandro is doing. I can't wait to tell you all about it in part two, and I'm really looking forward to doing Joan's What If Corner, which I got inspo from her actual mom on, so you know it's going to be special. See you soon. Bye.